great just to join together and worship, get into God's Word. We're in Genesis chapter 9 again, and moving into Genesis 9 now, we, we see Noah and the ark, of course, arriving safely on ground, all right? They're back on dry ground once more, and the family now emerges into a new world. And we're going to see Noah do two things as the family emerges, one of which is a good thing, one of which is a not-so-good thing that we're going to uncover, and I use that word probably not in the right way here, uh, as you'll see as we get into that here. But sadly, it's a reminder that though the world was destroyed, sin has not been destroyed. We'll, we're going to discuss this a little bit more as we continue on, but, but God is at work, and, and he's continuing to carry out his purposes in all this. Though sin is not destroyed, God is going to be at work here in this new era, and we see this new uh, covenant, this Noahic covenant unfold here in chapter 9 for us. The covenant is mentioned in Genesis 9 verse 9, and it's the first covenant that's mentioned in God's word, and it's an everlasting covenant. We're going to discuss it more as we get into that verse there in verse 9, but we're going to see leading up to that, there's there's four things that God is really instructing Noah and his family in. Four things that are kind of tied to this covenant in a way. Look at verse 1. It says, So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So the first thing they're called to do is to grow. All right? Could you imagine getting onto the ark and you're just a few of like millions and most likely billions of people that are existing on the earth to then get off the ark and realize that you're only one of eight now people that are left on the earth. I mean, that would be quite shocking, wouldn't it? So God necessarily needs to repeat this word and instruction that he'd given to Adam and to Eve, he now needs to instruct to Noah and his sons, and it is to be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. The earth has been emptied. So now, of course, this new family needs to come in and replenish and fill the earth. That's God's ideal, isn't it? Children are seen in scripture as a blessing and a reward that showed, it showed favor from God upon them. Psalm 127 verse 3 to 5 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. You know, it's quite a difference, isn't it, from what we see in our modern day society where this kind of push towards depopulation and really the, uh, not seeing the value really in, in having children, the blessing that comes along with that. We see this great propaganda that's being pushed to bring a decrease in population to see the inconvenience of children and of course the inconvenience in pregnancies and we know what that leads to. Now listen, I'm not saying that you need to go ahead and have like 12 children to honor the Lord. If that's what he's calling you to do, then by all means go for it. I'm not saying that you need to go and have like, a, you know, buy a, a whole condominium or, or townhouse section just for your family. We're not saying that. But multiplication has always been the heart of the Lord. And this is where we begin to see the, the work of the Lord able to unfold and be carried out here. So be led of him simply. Trust him in these things. Now, 
though some of us might be past the childbearing years, of course, we get to participate in multiplication of another sort. We may not be makers of men, but we can be fishers of men. And that's something that is a wonderful multiplication of the Lord where we get to be contributing to seeing people being added to the family of God. What a blessing that is when we get to share and pass on the good news of Jesus Christ, to share the gospel with people, to see them become children of God. And what a great spiritual legacy that is when we begin to see that word going out and people being added into the family of God. That's a wonderful joy right there, my friends. I pray that you're participating in that kind of multiplication as well. Okay, listen, on to some of my favorite verses now. Okay, verse two, it says this, and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Notice this, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Oh, just, I just love that right there. I've given you all things, even as the green herbs. So we move from the first part of this instruction, Noah, to grow, and now we look at grub. Grow and grub, all right? There's to be a new relationships now between animals and humanity. Up until, up until this point, it's believed that, that man was vegetarian, right? The animals and man got along very well, but now there'd be a new instinct within animals to, to flee man. There would be a, a fear and dread upon animals of man. Now that's gonna be a profitable thing for them now as God says these animals are food for you. You're to use these animals, you know, to go ahead and just chow down on. They're to be that protein for you, of course. So the animal kingdom is going to naturally going to want to avoid man. And man is going to have to work now to get his food. They're going to have to learn how to be hunters. They're going to have to learn how to trap or, or, or hunt down animals if they're going to eat and be nourished in this way. But this is not something that was to be done in vain. There's still a value on life that God is going to point out here. Look at what he says in verse four. He says, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So God here makes clear that life is to be respected. Animals are not to be devoured or mauled in any kind of a vicious way. Of course, they're to be treated humanely. One way is that it's to be properly killed and that is that the blood is not to be remaining in it because what does God say about the blood that the blood is the life source of that person or animal notice what what Hughes writes he says life is in the blood and God is the giver of life disregard for the gift of life is an affront to the giver of life this divine prohibition against eating blood also prepared humanity to appreciate the use of blood in sacrifice because belonging to God, it could be seen as his atoning gift to sinners, not theirs to him. Ultimately, we can understand that it is the life blood of the Lamb of God that is God's atoning gift to us. The blood is very significant. It tells us in Leviticus 17 verse 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I've given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Listen, the importance of the idea of blood in the Bible is shown uh, over and over again. Uh, and it's used multiple times. It's used 424 times 
in 357 separate verses in the New King James Version. Some of the things that we see regarding blood and the emphasis on it is that blood was the sign of mercy for Israel at the first Passover. It sealed God's covenant with Israel. Blood sanctified the altar, set aside the priest, made atonement for God's people. Sealed the new covenant, justifies us. It brings redemption, it brings peace with God, it cleanses us, it gives entrance to God's holy place. Sanctifies us and blood enables us to overcome Satan. Thank you to David Guzik for that list right there. Listen, this is not something to just uphold in the animal kingdom. The, the, the way that we deal with life and the treatment of life and regards to the blood being the life source of that life is not something we just deal with in the animal kingdom. This is something that's to be carried out uh, towards our fellow humanity. Look at what he says in verse 5. And here we move into that third kind of instruction that God is giving to Noah and his family. And that is in the area of government. We've seen grow, grub. Now we look at government, number three. Look at what it says in verse 5. Surely for your lifeblood... I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast I will require and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man and as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. So God here is establishing how we're to conduct and carry out improprieties with one another. God demanded that an animal that takes a human life, that animal is to be killed, right? But so much the more when a person goes and kills their fellow man. See, before the flood came, what do we see were some of the characteristics at place in the world? Well, there was great violence that was going on. Chapter 6, verse 13 said it was, it was completely marked with violence. It started early with Cain killing Abel and then with Lamech taking out uh, a person just for hurting him and then declaring very pridefully that anybody that comes to try to deal with him, he's going to pay 70 times back. Like Lamech was just kind of boasting in his, in his power and his might and, and basically saying, there's to be no repercussions for me taking another life. Well, God comes in now and he has another different plans here for humanity. See, the world continued to walk down that path of, of violence and, and murder until... God brought the judgment of the flood upon the world to wipe all that out. Now, on the other side of this, on the other side of the flood now, God instituted capital punishment as his means to carry out justice and to make the punishment fit the crime. So he's instilling within man a form of government that they were to carry out now to bring an end to needless kind of violence and murder to show like there are consequences, repercussions, and there's punishment that would come from that. The institution of capital punishment presupposes the establishment of governmental authority. Now, over the years, we've seen more and more people, you know, kind of speaking out against capital punishment. We've seen the way we handle the guilty be lightened more and more. And yet the effects of this kind of softer approach in our society towards crimes doesn't seem to be helping matters any. The disregard for human life in just a general sense has just continued to grow and become even more prolific in the way that those things are, are carried out. Listen, to argue against the death penalty is to argue against God's word. This was given to protect life because life is of immense value in God's eyes and it should be in ours too. 
the retribution is God's word to a violent world, or this retribution is God's word to a violent world. Luther said it this way, God establishes government and gives it the sword to hold wantonness in check. Less violence or less violence and other sins proceed without limit. Now, why does God hold such a high standard for the treatment of others? Well, it, it lays it out for us right there because it says in verse 6, for in the image of God, he made man. So this is why there's to be this this value placed in another human. To mistreat your fellow man is to have a disregard for what is God's. To take a human life is to usurp God's sovereignty over life and death, and that's a serious matter here. And we need to take that same perspective into just the general way that we're going to treat our fellow man. How we treat our neighbor, how we treat those around us. Listen, you may not be a murderer, all right, let's hope that's not the case that anybody watching here, if, if you are, you need to repent right now, please. But uh, you may not be a murderer, but how do you treat other people? Are you looking at other people with judgment or discrimination? Listen, here's what you need to understand is that they are made in the image of God and the way that you treat them matters because they're made in the image of God and you need to treat them as such, as image bearers of almighty God. And that should drastically change the way that you look at others and the way that you treat others. This is what God is laying out for us here. So God repeats here the importance of multiplying again in verse 7, multiplying, being fruitful in the earth, replenishing it. Listen, God is all about filling and making things fruitful. That's the program of God right there. He wants to fill things for the good and cause things to be fruitful. And that's what God is instructing Noah and his family to do. Now, here we get into uh, verse eight and into verse nine, we get into this covenant now. See, humanity's approach to God may not have changed, but God's approach to humanity is gonna change in the way that he carries out these covenants now with humanity. Look at what we read here in verse eight. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him saying, and as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Let's just keep reading here. It says in verse 12 now, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. He goes on to say here, I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Verse 17, and God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So here we read in this, in this long section I just read here, this, this covenant that God is making with Noah. 
and, and his family. And not just with Noah and his family, but with all generations to come. With every living thing on the earth. In, in other words, this pertains to you and to me right here. This covenant is something that we hold on to and we realize this is for us. Now, what is a covenant exactly? A covenant, well, the Hebrew word for covenant is bereath, which means to cut. It's taken from the way a covenant was often made at this time by cutting animals in two and joining them together opposite each other. And then the two parties that were making this agreement would join together walking through those cut animals and basically make their agreement together. That's what a covenant was. A covenant, as John Corson says, is a sovereign proclamation from the lips of God that puts him into a relationship of responsibility with a man, a family, or a nation. Now we see in God's word, essentially eight covenants that are laid out throughout scripture. We see, first of all, the Adena covenant, Genesis 2, verse 15 to 18. God told Adam and Eve that they were not to eat of the tree of life, or tree, sorry, not to eat of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, or else they would surely die. Then we see the Adamic covenant, Adam would pay the price for sin by having to labor for that which once came naturally. Now we see the Noahic covenant. This is, again, the first covenant that's named as a covenant in God's word, the Noahic covenant. And this is essentially God promises to never destroy the earth through a flood again. Then we move on to the uh, Abrahamic covenant, and that is um, where Abraham would be called to be a father of many. Through his line, the nations would be blessed. And, and ultimately the Messiah would come. Then the Mosaic Covenant, the law, the Ten Commandments was given to Moses and the Israelites. That was the first conditional covenant. God told them they would be blessed if they obeyed, but then they'd be cursed if they didn't obey. All right, Deuteronomy 28, spell set out for us. Then there's the Land Covenant, number six. The Lord would preserve the nation of Israel and bring them into the land of Canaan. That would be the land that he would promise to them that they would possess. Then there's the Davidic Covenant, which is where through David's line, God would establish his kingdom forever through Jesus, the Messiah. And then lastly, number eight, the new covenant, Jeremiah 31. That is a great covenant there for us again, where we enter in this new relationship with our heavenly father through the sacrificed life of Jesus Christ, where our sins are no longer held against us, but will be completely removed and wiped away, would be cleaned white as snow, and that's a blessing that we enjoy here today through the new covenant. Now, there's three things about this covenant here in, uh, in Genesis 9 with the Noahic covenant is that, first of all, it was unilateral, or sorry, it's universal, it's unilateral, and it's unconditional. Three things. It's universal, unilateral, and unconditional. It's universal because as we see there that this would be a covenant that would be for all generations, right? And not only for humanity, but every living creature on the earth. And it's unilateral because it's something that God is establishing with us. He, we see him twice say that it is my covenant. Look at verse nine. As for me, behold, I establish my covenant. And then down in verse 11, thus I establish my covenant with you. God is saying, this is what I am doing with you. And it's unconditional because God said he will never flood the world again. It's an everlasting covenant that he is securing. Look at verse 16. The rainbow shall be in the cloud and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. 
it's unconditional because it's an everlasting one that he will fulfill. Now the sign of the covenant as we see there, verse 16, is going to be a rainbow. Interesting that the technical idea here is that it's speaking of a, a battle bow. It's like God is saying, I'm not going to go to battle anymore against you. I'm going to hang up my bow. I'm not going to wipe man out for their sin until the last judgment comes. That final judgment of all will be one of fire. As Peter records, 2 Peter 3, 7, the heavens and the earth, which are not preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Oh, there will come a day when God will once again judge sin as he needs to do. But that's going to be done by fire, not by a flood. This is a one-time thing, this flood that's going to happen here. And God is, is setting up this covenant, this promise that he will not flood the world again. And we're living in this period of time right now where God is so faithful and long-suffering, merciful in not judging sin. Listen, my friends, let me say once more that sin has been already judged through Jesus Christ on the cross when Jesus died. My father, why have you forsaken me? You know, it's as though Jesus is saying the first time he's separated, been separated from the father because he's bearing the judgment of God upon him for your sin, for my sin. Judgment has already been executed upon Jesus Christ. But if we want to be spared from that judgment, we got to put our trust in Jesus. We got to acknowledge that Jesus did the work for me that I can't do. And we need to confess our sin, turn from our sin and put our trust in Jesus Christ. That's a promise for us. But every time we see a rainbow in the sky today, and, and many believe this maybe wasn't a new phenomenon on that day. It's, it's very possible they had seen rainbows before, but God is establishing the rainbow now to say, this is a reminder, a sign of this covenant. Every time we see a rainbow today, may we remember God's gracious, wonderful gift. As we see the many colors of rainbow, we talk about in Ephesians, even the manifold wisdom of God's grace here. This many colored wisdom of grace. May we be reminded of what Jesus accomplished for us, that we could be spared of judgment. Praise the Lord for that. So moving on to verse 18 now, we read about Noah and his sons. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his brothers outside. So here now, we have a, a bit of a peculiar story, right? That he kind of wonder why it's even in scripture. This is one of those biblical stories that just doesn't make it into many Sunday school curriculums. Could you imagine some of your kids coming home with coloring pages of, of Noah drunk in his tent here? You know, it just wouldn't, it, it wouldn't make for great conversation afterwards. Well, it might, but not the conversations you parents want to be having here. But this is not something that we oftentimes like to highlight, but it also reminds us that the Bible is not just highlighting perfect people. If it was of, of human authorship, this story, I'm sure, would have been deleted, taken out, or would have been exaggerated to make Noah even more reckless than he actually was. But I love the fact that the Bible is filled with imperfect people that stumbled and fell and yet were used of God. Listen, it's a reminder that you don't have to be perfect to serve God or be used of him. Now, 
before you read between the lines, listen, I'm not condoning getting drunk and streaking in your house. That's not where we're going with this conversation here. The Bible is very clear about drunkenness. This is something that will get in the way of you being able to serve God and be used of God. It tells us in Proverbs 20, verse one, wine is a mocker and strong drink is a brawler and whoever's led astray by it is not wise. Proverbs 23, verse 29 to 33, who has woe, who has sorrow, who has contentions, who has complaints, who has wounds without cause, who has redness of eyes, those who linger long at the wine, those who go in search of mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. So listen, I know there's a fascination today with you know wine and being connoisseurs of wine. Listen, wine is not wrong. What we're talking about here is drunkenness. When a person is drunk, what happens? You lose control. It affects you negatively. It, it exposes you. Noah was a man that was exposed and it revealed this weakness here. Listen, what we're told rather to do in Ephesians 5.18 is to not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, right? Quarreling, fighting. But it says, rather be filled with the Spirit. That's what leads you on to greater strength, not greater weakness. It's the wise choice and the choice that honors God being filled with the Spirit. So Noah, he has a bit of a, a setback here. He has a bit of an unfortunate situation unfold for him here. And, and it's Ham that goes in and he saw in verse 22 the nakedness. And the idea is that, you know, Ham didn't just kind of go in and go, oh, and, and look away and, and, and deal rightfully with this. It's like he kind of stayed there and gazed and, and almost, you know, mockingly looks at this here. But notice what his other brothers do, Shem and Japheth, verse 23. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, they laid it on both their shoulders and went backward and covered their nakedness or covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away and they did not see their father's nakedness. So notice what they did. They took a blanket on their shoulders and they walked and they walked backwards so that they would lay the blanket down without even looking at their father. Shem and Japheth were ones that wanted to honor their father and Ham was one that wanted to dishonor his father. It goes on to say in verse 24 here, so Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. How did he know? We're not sure. Perhaps his brothers told him, you know, or Shem and Japheth uh, revealed this news to, to Noah. And then Noah said, verse 25, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be a servant. And may God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So what's interesting here is that Ham's the guy that goes in the tent and sees his father, gazes probably a little bit too long, and and no doubt is, is thinking, you know, disgracefully of his father. But what does Noah do? He curses Ham's son and his youngest son, Canaan. Now that's very peculiar. How come Ham's not the guy that gets sort of the, the, the brunt of the, the judgment here? Well, most likely here, what we're seeing is that Noah understood very clearly that Canaan 
is certainly a guy that's following in his father's footsteps. That there are the same tendencies of sin, dishonor, disgrace flowing out of Canaan as it was with Ham. And so understand the way that we live our lives and the sins that we commit can have a very big impact on our children. I pray that we're those who are seeking to live godly lives, leaving behind a godly heritage that wins our kids and others over to the Lord and builds that kind of godly foundation in their lives. Now, this curse here, as it says in verse 25, curse be Canaan, most likely, uh, this is not a curse per se, but more so a prophecy that's being given, right? It's not a punishment for Ham's sin because God never punishes the sin of the father upon the children, Ezekiel 18, verse two to three makes that clear. So this is a prophecy that Noah lays out of the future outcome of Canaan. The, the natural progression that sin leads to in that he shall be a servant of servants. Sin is never gonna be a good master. No, it's gonna bring you into greater bondage. And simply the word, this prophetic word is that Canaan is going to be a servant of servants. We certainly see the, the Canaanite people being those that become servants of their flesh. They were a people that were so steeped in wickedness that God would hand them over to the Israelite people. This was the land and, and the people that Israel would defeat. The descendants of Canaan would become servants of God's people. This verse would have been some very good motivating material, right? For the people of Israel, when God is looking to bring them into the land of promised, uh, land of promise, where they would be reminded, oh, the people there, the Canaanite people, the descendants of Canaan are gonna be servants to us. Just as Noah said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. That's a great motivational verse there for them coming into the land. Because Shem would be the line by which Abraham would come through. That's the Messianic line. That's the Hebrew people here, the, the, the line of Shem. And it says also that Japheth, may God enlarge Japheth. Japheth represents the, the Gentile nations. And notice it says they would dwell in the tents of Shem in verse 27. See, that's gonna happen as they would be grafted in. They would have to rely on the spiritual heritage of the Jews for salvation, just as we've been seeing in Ephesians. Ephesians 3, 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. So good. Well, listen, chapter 10 is an interesting chapter. We're gonna get into this here tonight too. Uh, we got time. Chapter 10 <clears throat> gets into what is called the table of nations. This is where we find the origin of all the nations and the ethnic groups all around the world. This table of nations has carefully structured symmetries. For example, when we add up the nations that came from Noah's sons, we discover that they total 70. Another example of the multiples of sevens, tens, and seventies that we've seen so often in Genesis. And so here it suggests totality. All the nations of the earth are kind of represented here in this table of nations. 70 families listed here in this chapter. 14 from Japheth, 30 from Ham, and 26 from Shem. And from these, we have all the nations and the races in the world. Very interesting stuff here. Let's look at verse one. 
It says, now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Rephath, and Togarmah. The sons of Javan were Elisha, uh, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, verse 5, the coastline peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. So the sons of Japheth, these are the, the ancestors of the Indo-European peoples here. So Gomer, uh, and listen, let me bring up a map here to kind of, and I hope you can kind of see this and decipher this clearly on your screens here tonight. Um, it might be kind of small looking at some of those. Um, but we see kind of where these families of Noah were spread out from and what we're looking at here. I'm going to go through them kind of quickly here and let you see Gomer is representing the, the people of, of Germany. This is where Gomer and his family kind of migrated to, to some degree, German area. Magog, now that can mean the place of Gog and could be referencing Georgia, the, the region near the Black Sea. Many see Russia linked with Magog. Interestingly, the Wall of China has been referred to by ancient historians and some present-day Chinese people as the Wall of Magog. Name that because it was built as a barrier to keep the Russians from coming in and invading. Then we got Tubal there that's mentioned in verse 2. That's the modern Russian city of Tobolsk. And it's derived from Tubal, also associated with Rosh. Then Meshach in verse 2. Um, many believe that's um, Moscow is derived from Meshach here. Interestingly, Magog, Tubal, Meshach play an important part in end times prophecy. Looking at Ezekiel 38 and 39, we see these nations once again, or these, these family groups mentioned. They're the key figures of this end time invasion that's going to happen against Israel. Many believe that's going to be uh, you know, leading into or happening just after the, the tribulation period there is they're going to be burning a lot of the the fuel that's going to happen as God brings an end to their invasion and, and just basically destroys and that fuel is going to burn for seven years it says very interesting well then in verse two we've also got uh, Madai that's the Medes and the Persians present day Iran which is also interesting because you look at Iran and Iraq they've been at such incredible odds Iran you wonder why why is Iran and Iraq at such you know, hostile relationships. Well, uh, Iran are descendants of Japheth. Well, Iraq is actually descendants of Shem. They're the Arabs, the Semitic people. The only thing that keeps them from destroying each other is their common hatred towards Israel. That's the thing that kind of binds them together and not destroy one another. Very interesting, as they've come from two kind of very separate groups of people. Then in verse 2, we've also got Javan, which is um, modern-day Greece, and Tiras, many believe, modern-day Italy. Togarma in verse 3, these people settled in Turkey. Ashkenaz is eastern Germany or eastern Europe. The Ashkenazi Jews are those that settled in this region when they were dispersed from the land of Israel. They've come back to Israel, and they continue to be known as the Ashkenazi Jews, all stemming from right here, what we read in verse 3. And then Tarshish in verse 4 is, is believed to be kind of the, the outer skirts there, uh, Spain or England perhaps. Let's continue on verse 6 here. 
we read that the sons of Ham were Cush, Mizram, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and, and Sabtika. And the sons of Ramah were Sheba and Dedan. Cush then begot Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kelna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, Kalah. Let me stop. Let me read verse 12, actually. And resin between Nineveh and Kalah, that is the principal city. So let me just stop right there. Sons of Ham, these are the ancestors of African, Arabian, and, and Canaanite peoples. Cush then, as we see Cush in verse 6 mentioned, would be Ethiopia. Mizram is Egypt, and that's the customary name for Egypt in the Bible, interestingly enough. Put in verse 6 is also uh, known as Libya today. Canaan in verse 6, that's the land of Israel, right? That they would have to be, the Canaanite people would have to be exterminated by the Israelites because of their rebellion and sin. And you see kind of the, the beginning of that now back in Genesis 9 as we saw Noah give this prophecy or this curse towards Canaan, the youngest son of Ham. And so they would be kind of mastered by their own sin. They'd be a servant of servants. They'd be taken out here. Then Sheba and Dedan in verse seven is Saudi Arabia. Again, these are the guys who are going to protect or, or sorry, protest the nations coming down to attack Israel in Ezekiel 38 and 39. All right, as, as we saw, again, those nations, um, you know, Magog, Tubal, Meshach coming against them. Well, uh, Sheba and Dedan, modern day Saudi Arabia, is gonna be protesting these nations coming and ultimately they're gonna be a target of this attack because of Saudi Arabia's wealth and oil. Very clearly, that's an asset any country would covet. Now, we come here to a very interesting descendant of Cush, Nimrod. Nimrod is not a good guy. His name means let us rebel. And that's exactly what he did. It says here that he's a mighty hunter and the implication is not just a, a mighty hunter of game, of animals, but he's a mighty hunter of souls, of humanity, that, that he lived in rebellion against God and looked to openly rebel and go against the plan of God. He stands out really as a type of the Antichrist. Now, we're going to get into a little bit more of Nimrod's story in Genesis 11, which we'll be hitting in the new year. We won't do that right now, but in Genesis 11, we're going to see a little bit more about Nimrod and, and kind of the course of action that he's leading into because it's a great rebellion against God that's not going to, not going to go well. But Nimrod here, what does he do? Well, he establishes his kingdom in Babylon, the land of Shinar, verse 10. Just as the Antichrist will establish his kingdom in Babylon, Revelation 17 and 18. But not only does he establish his kingdom in, in Babylon, but he also established the kingdom of Assyria. Verse 11 of Genesis 10. These are the two prominent kingdoms in the history of Israel that came against Israel. The Babylonian kingdom and the Assyrian kingdom. The Assyrians came and they led an attack against Israel leading the 10 
northern tribes of Israel away into captivity, 722 BC. That's at the hand of the Assyrians, of which Nimrod was the founder of. And then the Babylonians came and they invaded again and, and they took away the, the tribe of Judah into captivity in 586 BC. This is all kind of seen the root of it right here in Genesis 10. Are these two kingdoms that were led by this anti-type figure of the Antichrist, Nimrod. Not a good guy. Well, listen, we're gonna move on. There's a lot more we could say about Nimrod and uh, a, a lot of interesting story and, and history we learn about him that we could maybe get into in Genesis 11. We'll see here. We'll pray about that. But um, continuing on here in verse 13, we read that Mizram begot Ludim, Anamim, Lehebim, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, and and Kasahim, from whom came the Philistines and Kaftorim. Uh, Kaftorim, yeah. Interesting, again, Mizraim was um, Egypt, and we see these names here, very much kind of these Egyptian-sounding names. Verse 15, Canaan, Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, the Jebusite, the Amorite, and the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Archite, and the Sinite, the Arvadite, the Zemurite, and the Hamathite, Afterward, the families of the Canaanites were dispersed. So here we see just kind of a list of a lot of the, the enemies that Israel is gonna be facing uh, in their history. Verse 19, the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon as you go toward Gerar, as far as Geza. Then as you go toward Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These were the sons of Ham according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, and in their nations. Let me just bring up a few of these names that we mentioned here. Sidon, of course, is the chief city of the Phoenicians, which still exists today. It's mentioned both in Old and New Testaments. Jebusite in verse 16, the Jebusite. That's an interesting name because these were the people that were dwelling in Jerusalem. The city named Jebus uh, before David came in and finally conquered the Jebusites and overtook this city that became the capital uh, of Israel there, Jerusalem. The, the early, you know, people coming into the land of Canaan and they were to drive everybody out, they could not drive out the Jebusites in Jerusalem. It, it took until the time of David to finally see that get done. That was the last stronghold in Canaan. And then in verse 17, we see uh, the Sinites being mentioned. This is what many believe... Uh, were the, um, the family of the Asian nations. They have their roots in this family here, the, the Oriental nations. And then in verse 21, we read, and children were born also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber. Okay, take note of that name, Eber. And that's the brother, Japheth the elder. Verse 22, the sons of Shem were Elam, Asher, Arphaxad, Lud and Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz, Hol, Gether, and Mash. Arphaxad begot Salah, and Salah begot Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan begot Almadad, Shelef, Hazarmapheth, Jerah, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. Yes, I am saying all these names exactly how they're meant to be pronounced. <laughs> I 
no idea. Okay. Uh, and now all these were the sons of Joktan, and their dwelling place was from Mesha as you go toward Sephar, the mountains of the east. Verse 31. These were the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, according to their nations. These are the families of the sons of Noah, according to the generations in their nations. And from these, the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. So here now, verses 21 to, to 30, we get the sons of Shem. So three sons of Noah, highlighted here, Japheth, the Indo-European peoples, Ham, the uh, African and Arabian, Canaanite peoples. Shem now is the, the, the family of the Semitic peoples. Eber is mentioned again in, in verse uh, 21 and then in verse 24. Eber is the father of the Hebrew people. Hebrew means crossed over. See, this has been a nation that has had to cross over many times as the Lord guided them to the promised land and to his promises generally. So Eber is where we get the name Hebrew people. Verse 25, it says, For in his days the earth was divided. See, Peleg, as it's mentioned there in verse 25, Peleg was a contemporary of Nimrod. And this is believed to be talking about the time in Genesis 11 when the Tower of, of Babel will be built and God is going to divide the nations. This is when he's going to scatter them abroad. Now many believe some you know, kind of hypothesize that this is speaking of, you know, uh, the, the pre-flood kind of continents all being one mass and then this continental divide that happens now. Some believe that this is what's being spoken of here. In context, what we're looking at, certainly it, it, it's more fitting to talk about how God is dividing the people across the face of the earth at this time for this rebellion that we'll see in Genesis 11. So Peleg being a contemporary of Nimrod is referencing this time period now. Now the final verse of chapter 10, again, takes up the theme of the division of the nations, providing a context for the narrative of the city of Babylon that follows. What has been described geographically and linguistically in chapter 10 is described theologically in chapter 11, namely, God's judgment of Babylon and his dispersion of the nations. Now, I think it's interesting, you know, when we look at this, God dividing the nations, and yet in that divide of the nations, God's ultimate desire is to gather people to him. I love what Paul writes in, in Acts chapter 17. Let me just share this with you here. Acts chapter 17, um, and starting in verse, let me start in verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And verse 26 of Acts 17, I love this. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Do you see what Paul says? That we are one blood. We've come from the same kind of lineage, all traced back to Noah here. Ultimately traced back to Adam and Eve, but now post-flood traced back to Noah. And out of his sons, we see all the different nations of the earth, but understand we are one blood, my friends. Man, this needs to dispel any kind of 
racist, discriminatory view we have of one another. We're one blood. We're made in the image of God. And though we're scattered and though we've, we've grown up with different kind of, uh, of traditions and, and, and histories and whatnot, God scattered us ultimately so that we might learn. He's, and he's, again, pre-pointed those boundaries and times here that we might ultimately seek him and come to know him and find life in him because he is, as Paul says, the giver of all life here. This is God's heart in all of this. Let me read what, what Hughes writes in his commentary. He says this, as already mentioned, there are 70 nations listed in the table of nations in Genesis 10. The selective list was composed because 70 is meant to convey totality. All the nations of the earth, it conveys a vast ecumenical unity of all humanity. And it was out of this one humanity that Abraham was called. The reason God chose Abraham is so that through his seed, God's blessing would go to all the families of the earth, as Genesis 12, verse 3 records. And it is with this purpose in mind that Moses reminds his readers that the total number of Abraham's seed, that is Jacob and his sons and their families, was 70 when they went down into Egypt, as we'll get into in chapter 46 of Genesis. Before Abraham, the nations numbered 70. After Abraham, at the close of Genesis, his seed numbered 70, exactly parallel to the number of nations. Moses is taking care to let us know that God is a special role for the seed of Abraham, which is to bring blessing to the whole earth. Jesus himself was aware of this, and that is why he once sent out 70 disciples. The answer for the world, which is so united in its humanity and its responsibility to God, but so divided from God and one another because of sin, the answer for this comes through the ultimate seed of Abraham, Christ the Messiah, who, again, we celebrate, not, I pray, just this time of year coming to this world, but that we celebrate every day. Because from all the nations, God chose one nation, by which the promise he would come that would be a blessing then again to all nations. Oh man, may I, I pray that we just understand the great, again, unity that we have together as, as one blood. And, the, and the, the purpose and the goal is simply to see all nations come to faith in Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, the promised one, that gives life, not just life physically, but life spiritually, life eternally to all people. It's found in Jesus Christ. And I pray that you are walking, abiding in him and celebrating him. Not just because it's Christmas season here, as we remember how Jesus came to this world to do that work for us, but that we celebrate him every day of the year, thankful for the life we have in him. Well, that concludes Genesis 9 and 10. Uh, today here our study and uh, we'll be taking a break over the Christmas season and we're going to get back into Genesis and Genesis 11 specifically um, in the new year so stay tuned for details on that let me pray okay Heavenly Father we thank you for this time together in your word that we get to look at this and and uh, God just look at the wonderful history that we have and the work that you've done here God um, I pray that you'll continue to move us, Lord, into just a, a closer walk with you, Lord. Knowing, God, how much you love us, how much you care for us, how much you've covered us, God, with your grace and goodness. And I pray, God, that we would honor you in all that we do, Lord. Let us uphold these things that you've laid out to us here in your word 
tonight, God. And may we live these lives that have been given to us from you. May we live them wholeheartedly for you to your honor and praise. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, good night, everybody. God bless you. And uh, if I don't see you before Christmas, may you all just have a wonderful, fruitful Christmas season. And uh, may God just be with you. Lord bless and we'll talk soon.